Well, good afternoon, church. Can everyone hear me in the back? All right, thank you. If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to open them up to Isaiah 41. We will be in Isaiah 41, verses 10 through 16. Isaiah 41, 10 through 16. Now, I don't think it's a stretch at all to say that we live in an age of anxiety. People are worried. People are fearful of a great many things. In one sense, it's a little bit ironic. We're one of the most secure and stable and safe generations of human beings that have ever lived. For one reason or another, people are today incurably worried. Could be because the economic highs that, for the most part, we've enjoyed seem to be going downward. Could be because of the destruction of the family and the horrendous effects that has on a group of people. It could be from the embrace and promotion and unrestrained love of sin that is growing in our present age. Could be for any number of reasons why people are so anxious. But whatever the cause, whatever the reason for the fear, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you don't have any reasons to be afraid. For every one reason to fear, you've been given 10,000 to not be afraid. That's the point of our passage this morning. Isaiah 41, 10 through 16. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest will scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would get glory for Your name this morning. Lord, it's not in the preparation. It's not in the songs that are sung. There is nothing in me that can accomplish anything. There's nothing in any one of us that can accomplish anything in the faith. 
Lord, we are looking for a peace that passes understanding. And if all we have is our understanding, then we're not going to get to the peace. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, this afternoon, that You would help Your people to understand Your Word, that You would take it and engrave it on our hearts with a pen of iron so that we who have no reason to fear whatsoever would be a people who are not afraid or anxious or worried about anything, but we would be able to say, like Peter tells us, that we can laugh in the face of the things that are frightening. Not because of us or because of some great strength we possess, but because of You, O Lord, our God, who is our help in time of trouble, who comes for us in the time of need, who holds in His hands the life and breath of every living thing. It's to You we look, Lord, Help us this afternoon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Do you know what the most often repeated command is in the entire Bible? It's our theme this morning. It's given three times in this passage. Do not be afraid. Fear not. Do not be anxious. It's a command that is repeated in the Bible 365 times. It's repeated as many times as there are days in the year. That's how often in the Word God commands His people in various ways not to be afraid. In fact, this might surprise most of you. In God's eyes, you go and you look at all of these passages, one thing you'll discover that stands out, we'll see this afternoon, that is in God's eyes... It is a sin for His people to be fearful. Now, have you ever thought of things like fear and worry and anxiety as sinful before? Right? What it is. God commands it. And if God commands anything and you do the opposite, if God says, do not hate your brother and you hate your brother, it's sin because God commanded you not to hate your brother. And if God commands you not to be afraid and you're afraid, it's still sin. Which is why, if you were to go through the Bible, every time this command, fear not, comes up, every time this command, fear not, is given, it's given as a rebuke or a correction. Now, why would that be? Well, let's not be naive about it. There are many things in the world to be afraid of. Right? We live in a fallen world. I mean, think of how many things that could happen to you in just the run of a day. You could get sick. You could get into a car accident. Someone could, out of the blue and for no reason at all, shoot you and take your life. You could lose your job. Your business could fall apart unexpectedly. The economy could collapse. Get caught in a house fire. Kids might grow up and wander away and you never hear from them again. You've got all kinds of things that we could worry about. All kinds. And there are thousands upon thousands of reasons to be fearful. And you know this because you experience them. You live through them. You deal with them. In fact, 
Um, most of you in this room, this very moment, if I told you to name three things that you're afraid of, you could do it. Right off the top of your head, without a second thought. One, two, three. That's what I'm worried about today. <laughs> and it might be different tomorrow, but you could just rattle them off without a second thought. And you're worried about the future, and you're worried about your family, and you're worried about so many things. And it just seems to come natural, doesn't it, to worry. So why does God rebuke this? Because we think of fear, we don't think of someone needing to be rebuked. When we think of fear, we think of someone needing to be helped. When we think of someone who's anxious, we think, well, they need to be built up and encouraged. So why, why does the Bible correct the Christian for being fearful? And I want to make that distinction because if someone is not a Christian and someone does not know the Lord, for them not to be afraid is foolish. They have every reason to be afraid and they ought to be afraid. It's not a sign of their courage if they aren't. It's a sign of their blindness or naivety, right? They don't recognize that the world could turn against them. They don't realize they could wake up in the morning with everything gone. Their courage, it really isn't based in reality. It's based on the kind of thinking that says, well, it could never happen to me, even though it can, and even though it does. That's not courage in the face of fear. That's a blind naivety. It's credulity. And for the Christian. It's different because the Christian calls God Father. And God has given many precious gifts and promises to His children. Promises that deal with reality and promises that say even if you wake up in the morning and all is lost, you still don't need to be afraid. And the reason God rebukes fear in His people is because fundamentally, fear in the Christian is always born out of a proud unbelief. It can seem strange when you think about it that way, doesn't it? When you think of pride, when you think of being proud, what conjures up in your mind usually isn't someone trembling like a leaf because they're worried about what's going to happen, right? That's not proud, that's timid, that's cowardly. Pride is confidence, right? Pride has a, a bring-it-on kind of attitude, not worry and anxiety. That's the opposite. Actually, there is common ground beneath self-confidence and the trembling worrier. Both of them are trusting in themselves and not in the Lord. I mean, think about it. Think about this. If a person does not know the Lord God, they don't know Him, and something fearful comes along... They can respond in one of two ways. Either they can puff out their chest and they can stand tall and they can say, bring it on, I'm strong, I can take care of this, I can overcome. And they, they reach down deep inside themselves and they grab hold of some hidden strength and they pull that out and face the trial head on. Pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Now that's one way of dealing it without dealing with trials, fears without God. And the other is they can begin to worry and be anxious and wring their hands together wondering what in the world they're going to do. And they're not strong enough and they know it and they reach down and they don't find anything inside and because they have no strength to face the trial, they tremble. Both of those have something in common though, don't they? Both of them are reaching down inside to trust in self. And that that trusting in self and not in God is the definition of pride. 
And some people have a lot of money and a lot of means, and they're like the rich fool, right? So they look around at what they have, and they say, it doesn't matter what's coming tomorrow. I've got the means, and I've got the money, and I've got the power. I'm ready. Come what may. And they don't trust in the Lord. They trust in themselves. But it's the same attitude in the fearful. They look at their means and what they have, or more likely what they do not have, and instead of saying, bring it on, they recognize that they've got no power and no money and no means, and so they get anxious. But neither of those people are trusting in the Lord. Both responses, sinful self-confidence and sinful anxiety, are born from a pride that looks inward and not outward to God. And so the command, the fear not, that is given to believers, that command assumes that you have stopped looking out to God and started looking in to self for help. Fear not always is a call to turn your eyes away from you and what you have towards God and what He has promised to provide. Now consider our passage this morning. Three times we are commanded not to be afraid. Verse 10, verse 13, verse 14. And verse 14 in particular, it's quite severe, isn't it? It's not a comforting passage in some ways. It's, it's certainly not a hand around the shoulder of the person shaking with fear to calm them down. It's more like being doused with a pitcher of ice-cold water to bring someone back to their senses. Right? Fear not, you worm Jacob. I don't know how the prophet would have spoken this, but I'm sure it would have been strange to hear it. One of the things you see is that Jacob has no confidence in himself, and if he does, he shouldn't. And by the way, Jacob here is another name for Israel, which Paul tells us in Romans is all God's people, Old Testament and New. That's who God is telling here through Isaiah not to be afraid. And so here we are in Isaiah 41, 14 described as a fearful worm. And we're told not to be afraid, even though we're still the worm. So obviously, the source of our fearlessness is not coming from us. It comes from God. And so when He gives three commands to fear not, He gives us many more reasons why we shouldn't, all of them centered on Him, not us. Verse 10, fear not. Why? Four, one, I am with you. Two, I am your God. Three, I will strengthen you. Four, I will help you. Five, I will uphold you. Six, I will put your enemies to shame. Those who would destroy you will become as nothing at all. Seven, verse 13, I hold you by the hand. Verse 14, eight, I help and redeem you. Nine, I will give you victory over your enemies. Ten, I will give you reason to rejoice. Ten reasons why we ought not to fear. Ten reasons why it's inappropriate for God's people to be afraid. God has promised us all of these things in this passage alone. Ten reasons why we shouldn't be afraid. I'd be something else entirely different if God hadn't spoken, wouldn't it? If He'd kept His mouth closed, no one could rightly be rebuked. If God didn't promise anything then your fears would be justifiable. And if God hadn't opened His mouth, then fearlessness would be nothing more than presumption and vainglory. All we could say is, well, God's going to help me because why wouldn't He? We have promises, and many of them, from the Lord. 
He promised to deal with the things that frighten us and not only deal with them, but deal with them for our good. God is the one who's taking care of these things. And if God is the one who's taking care of them, why should we be afraid? It's exactly what God says ten chapters later in Isaiah 51.12. In Isaiah 51.12, God says this to His people again. He says, I, I am the one who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the Son of Man who is made like grass. You see what, did you see what he says there? Who are you to be afraid? I am God, and I comfort you. I have given my promises to you. I have pledged my word, and here you are trembling as if everything I've said doesn't matter at all. Who are you to be afraid when God comforts you? You're going to be afraid of men? They die. Not only do they die, they're like the grass. Can you remember where a single blade of grass that you mowed? Can you remember where it is? When the snow falls and covers your lawn and you go out in the spring after it's all melted, are you going to be able to say, oh yes, this was where my favorite piece of grass grew? You're not. It's gone. And nobody remembers it anymore. Do you know the Bible says that's what man is like? And fearing men when God has spoken is like being afraid of the grass that perishes. If it's God who comforts you, who are you to be afraid? Fear in the believer's life, it's always pride and unbelief. It always says, I don't believe God, therefore I must trust in myself. That's pride. And nowhere is that clearer than in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Most of you know verse 7. Cast your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. And if you have an NIV, that's exactly what it says. Right? Nice little quaint promise. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. But that's really not what it says. At least it's a poor translation of what it should say. There is no period between verses 6 and 7. If you have an ESV, you'll notice this, or a New American Standard. You take a look. It says, verse 7, there's a participle casting your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now listen, that is a big difference. In one translation, we're commanded to simply cast our anxieties on Christ. In the ESV, which is a better translation, casting our anxieties on Him is how we accomplish something else. It's a subordinate clause. Verse 7 is subordinate to verse 6. And instead of giving you a grammar lesson, let me give an example. If I were to say, drive carefully, keeping your eyes on the road, then I would be telling you the way to drive carefully is by keeping your eyes on the road. Or if I said, be generous, giving to those in need, then giving to those in need is how you would be generous. And here we have, humble yourself, casting your anxieties upon Him. And so the way that you humble yourself is by casting your anxieties on the Lord. Pride is holding on to them yourself. 
How do you do that? You do that by preaching to yourself and reciting the promises to care for you and and consciously saying something along the lines of Proverbs 3, uh, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. I will trust in the Lord with all of my heart. Lean, uh, do not lean on your own understanding. I'm not going to trust in what I see around me. I'm going to lean on the Lord. I'm going to trust Him. I'm not going to trust in what has happening here. In all of my ways, I'm going to acknowledge Him. What's that mean? I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to do what He's commanded me to do. That's what's clear. And trust that He will make my path straight. You want straight paths? You want the direction uh, of your life to know where it should be and what you should not be anxious about? Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding or your own strength or your own circumstances, but instead live your entire lives striving to do His will, right? The Word of God and He Himself will take the path that looks so crooked and dark and confusing and He'll make it straight and bright and clear. He's given His Word. It takes humility to do that. It takes humility to trust in the promises of God. But if you want peace in this life, If you want peace, which is the opposite of fear, peace when you really have no reason for peace, you're only going to get it one way. By trusting in the Lord and by trusting in Him more than what you can see and more than what your circumstances suggest and certainly more than your means. You say, what's this look like on a practical level? Well, there's financial downturn. It looks like you might lose your savings and your job. Or it looks like you might lose your house or have no food or face the shame of loss because nobody likes to fail or feel like a failure. So what do you do if you're a Christian? Situation looks grim. If you're a Christian, you pray and you preach to yourself. Lord, this looks bad. I don't have the means to help myself I don't have the ability to hold my head above water and the tide is coming in and my feet are in cement. I don't see a way out of this, God. But, God, You are with me. And You are my help. And You hold me with Your right hand. And Your arm is not weak. And You are able to overcome all that I am facing, even if it gets a hundred times worse. And so, Lord, I am trusting in You and not in me because You are my help and my deliverance and my strength. That's not pride. That's humility. And it takes humility to place your life into the hands of another. This is different than courage, by the way. Sometimes you you see something coming on the horizon, you think you need courage. Not primarily. Let me maybe give you an example of why. Matthew 10, it says, Do not fear men who can kill the body, but that's it. Fear God who can kill the body and cast the soul into hell. So let me give you a picture. Imagine you have in front of you a seven-foot 400-pound mixed martial arts champion who wants nothing more than to crush your skull because he hates you. So you've got him there on the one side. And then on the other side, you have this gigantic, towering, 500-foot-tall giant who could vaporize you with the breath of his nostrils. You have to decide 
which one you're going to fear. If you side with the seven-foot-tall man, it's going to be you and him against the Colossus. You side with the giant, it's him alone against this man. Now, which side are you going to pick? The reason I point this out and give this example is because it shows that fearing the Lord instead of fearing men, it really doesn't take courage as much as it takes sanity. Because nobody in their right mind is going to side with a man, no matter how strong, no matter how capable he is, humanly speaking, when facing this kind of supreme being. Every rational person who cares about the preservation of their life would side with the giant. Well, it's the same with trusting in the Lord. It's insane for the Lord to give you a promise and then you to doubt it. It's beyond what's sensible. It's completely foolish to not believe what God has said, especially concerning His care for you. And the reason it is that way is because of who He is. It's not courage as much as it is knowing who God is that strengthens you to overcome fears and worries. Now, the reason it doesn't often feel this way and the reason sometimes you don't see fear that way is that you don't know God and His promises as well as you ought. Not only does that rob you of peace, but it shatters your joy. And imagine you had a good friend. Imagine you had a good friend who announced to everyone, I want you to think about what fear says about God. Because your fear, the way you live your life, your anxiety does say something about Him. So you've got a friend, imagine, who says before everyone that He is going to take care of you and provide all the food that you need, everything you need for the next year. He's going to buy it for you. He's going to bring it to your door. Gave you His Word. Witnessed by many other people. It's confirmed. Well... What would those other people think if after a couple of weeks they saw you at the grocery store? You woke up in the morning. You were anxious that maybe your pantry was empty. You were anxious that your friend wouldn't come through today even though he had every other week for the last month. But in a jolt of panic, you go yourself. What would the people who heard that promise think? They'd think, well, what's he doing here? Right, what happened to the promise? Maybe the guy who made it was all talk. Maybe he isn't even able to do what he said he was going to do. Maybe he's not as good a friend as he thinks he is or said he was. It's going to be something along those lines and none of it good. The friend who promised to provide for you all that you need is now slandered because you didn't trust him and took matters into your own hands. You see what happens when you don't trust in the Lord. It makes God look unloving and weak. It makes God look like He's unable to fulfill His promises. And that's what anxiety does. It denies the work of God. Right? God's unable to give you peace. He makes promises that He can't deliver. Now this isn't true, but it's what fear and anxiety say to a watching world about the Lord God. He's, he's unable, He's weak, or He's a liar. And it's no small thing for our lives to say that about our God. Pride in anxiety slanders the very goodness of God. 
This is one of the reasons why he resists the proud. He doesn't come and help them. He lets them use their means, lets them use their power, and often they suffer for it. But he gives grace and peace to the humble. And that requires humble faith. So if you want to have peace and not fear and anxiety, know the Lord, trust in His Word, know Him and trust in Him. Those are the two things that will drive out fear and bring in His peace. And they have to be in that order because all of the life-giving and life-sustaining promises that God makes, they don't mean anything if they're not coming from the sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing God. We have a little bit of time left. I want to spend the time looking at these two things in particular, how who God is and what He says gives us the ability to overcome any fear if we humble ourselves under His mighty hand. And it really does begin with knowing and believing who He is. You know, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 4.19. It says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Why does Peter, in the context here of the people facing suffering and being afraid, why does he emphasize that God is a faithful Creator? Right? Why not faithful Father or faithful Deliverer or Savior? Creator does not seem like the most comforting thing he could say to his people. It's not what I would want to hear if I was suffering. I doubt it's what you would want to hear if you were fearful. Okay, yes, the, the story that I learned about in Sunday school, God made everything in seven days. I get it. Why are you telling me this, Peter, right now? You know, there's a lion about to eat me alive, and I'm a little bit afraid. So, Peter, why are you pointing me to the one who created everything? The reason he points to the one who created everything, the reason why he says, trust yourself to the faithful Creator is because he's not trying to comfort you in this passage. That's not the goal. The goal in this passage is to embolden you and strengthen you, and those are two very different things, right? Comfort, it comes alongside, puts its arm around your shoulder and says, there, there. The other equips you to face the problem and overcome. Comfort doesn't overcome. It just helps you to endure better, <laughs> And sometimes Christians just want comfort, but they don't get it because it's not what they need. God knows what we need, and God gives what we need. And so you might be looking for comfort, and God might give you strength or a rebuke to tell you to stop trusting in yourself and start following, uh, trusting in Him. And so when you're facing a terrible prospect, you think about this, if you're facing a fearful future, this is what Peter thinks you need to be reminded of. God is the one who created all things, including the horrible thing possibly on the horizon. It comes from Him because He is God the Creator. Just, just listen, listen to the extent of His creation that Paul describes in Colossians 1. He says, For by Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Right? Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. All things, visible, invisible, not just the material world, not just seas and mountains, creatures that are, 
invisible things like the laws of nature, the course of history. Every government ever set up and by extension every decision that they've ever handed down has come from His hands. And so Peter is telling these people, you're in trouble. You get a trial. Something fearful is happening. It's not random. It's not just God, God, God hasn't lost control of the situation here. It's coming from Him. Because He's the Creator. He's the one who orchestrated it and put it into being. So you don't need to be afraid. He's the one who holds the life and breath of every living thing. He takes His hand away. That breath stops. That's the one who's brought this to pass and placed you right in the middle of it. So you need to know God this way if you're ever going to face anxieties and worries in the world. Because a small, weak, partial view of God or a, a fragmented or a dependent God is never going to be sufficient. So let me give you an example. If you're afraid of, of what's going on in the nation, the only way you could possibly go on without fear is by knowing the one who is in charge of the nation and able to change the course of it. And I'm not talking about the prime minister. God is in control of everything that happens, good and bad. And you need to know Him in His fullness. If you only know, for example, the love of God, it's all you know about God, God is love. But you don't know His faithfulness, and you don't know His ability and power and authority. All His promises become meaningless, don't they? Oh, He has good intentions, God does. He said many beautiful things. But He is often forgetful. And when he does remember, he's not very good at doing what he says. Makes God a kind of a cheerleader that shouts from the sidelines, but he can't offer any real help. Or you could have a God who loves you and who is faithful. He remembers, but he has no ability. So God comes up alongside of you. He is for you. He takes up your cause, but he may not be able to carry it to completion. Circumstances might be stronger than he is, right? He might be thwarted by outside forces or your bad decisions. And so even though God promises these things, it's not really helpful because what good is a promise if the one who makes it has no ability and no strength to bring it to pass? Oh, it's only when you understand his sovereignty and his power that you can recognize Him as the one true God and cast your anxieties on Him. Anything less than that is less than God. In the Bible, the God of the Bible is the God who ordains and controls all things. He orchestrates life and death, peace and calamity, upheaval and calm. He is over it all. And there are literally hundreds of verses that speak about this very thing. Hundreds. God is in charge all of the time, and everything He ordains comes to pass. And we don't have time possibly to look at them all, but we can look at one. It's Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6. He says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord will hold them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So you get the picture here. All of the armies of the world have come together against the Lord. And even though that might fill any one of us with fear, when they point the artillery towards heaven, God laughs. This would be like if you were to walk out into the parking lot and and 10,000 of those little tiny red ants all came together and started shaking their fists at you. It's so pathetic, it's comical, right? One stomp and it's all over. Resistance is futile. So futile, it's, it's, it's funny that they would even try. That's the picture that God uh, gives us when the nations rail against Him. And you, know, you, read, you, you hear this and you say, well, what does that have to do with God's sovereignty and God's control? You know, I see His power in this passage, very obviously, but what about His providence? Any of you know where this passage is quoted primarily in the New Testament? It's in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Peter quotes it. He's leading the believers believers in prayer. He's just been released from prison. They're praying for boldness. It's Acts 4, 24-28. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Listen to verse 27. So he's just quoted Psalm chapter 2. The nations are raging against the Lord's anointed. Here's Peter's interpretation. For truly in this city were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. See what Peter's saying? He's saying that even when the nations rise up against God, and they remove every symbol and vestige that could remind them of Him, right? They remove prayer, Ten Commandments, any, any number of things. When they get taken away, and when they turn against God's people, right, which in the Lord's eyes is the same as turning against Him. You remember Acts 7, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute Me? Jesus says, when they do that, some of you, you worry, the nations, all the nations of the world seem to be throwing off everything that could possibly even remind them of Christianity, and they're, they're going the opposite direction. What, God, what's going on? Well, not only is He laughing, but the reason they're doing it ultimately is because God, long ago, ordained it to come to pass. When the nations become hostile to Christ, and the church, or to Christ through the church, they are doing exactly what God planned and predestined to take place. When Psalm 2 happens, the nations grow hostile. It is always according to God's divine and perfect plan. Right? God, nothing is ever outside of His control. God never looks down from on high to what's happening on the earth and says, what was I doing? He just doesn't do that. You say, okay, well, how does this conquer fear? Well, it means that everything that happens, 
everything. I wish we had time to go through all of the different passages uh, in, in the book of Proverbs. The, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. You raise nations up and you bring nations down. All throughout Scripture you see this. What it means is that whatever happens, it comes from the hand of your Heavenly Father. So you have to know God fully. That He loves you, that He's faithful, and that He's able. And this God is able to ensure that all of His promises come to pass. The more you know Him, the more precious those promises become. Sometimes you read something in the Bible and you wonder, this, this, this seems to have more punch behind it than I'm, I'm, I'm feeling. This should change the entire course of my life and it's just not having that effect. You know, one of the reasons why that could be is that you don't know the one making the promise very well. But listen, the more you read and the more you seek and the more you search, the more you will find of Him. And the more you know Him, the stronger His assurances become. When that happens, the promises that God gives begin to take flight. Promises like Romans 8, 28, probably in terms of of facing fear and anxiety in the world. Romans 8, 28, probably the greatest promise in the Bible. And we know... Now for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. You know, for this to be possible, you need a God who is sovereign over everything, or else this promise just, just falls flat. It, it isn't that if, if God isn't sovereign, this verse becomes. God has the very best intentions for you. And it might work out for you and it might not. That's not what it says. That's not who God is. All things. Right? All things. A promotion or you get laid off. You get married or you get dumped. Something good happens. Something bad happens. Or even when you make bad choices and suffer for it. You know, some of you... Some of you probably think you married the wrong person. You worry about it a lot. Right? Maybe there were sinful circumstances that led up to it. Maybe uh, there were red flags that you ignored. Maybe it was just youthful folly. But guess what? If you're a Christian, however the Lord brought the two of you together, it was Him who did it. And if you're a Christian, you can trust Romans 8.28 applies to your marriage. It's working together for your good. And you're married to exactly the person God ordained for you. And there's nobody else in the world that you missed out on. So if you're a Christian, your marriage, whoever it's to, is for your good. 100% of the time, 100%, no exceptions. God is for your marriage. This ought to take a lot of anxiety out of it, huh? It ought to. But that's just one application of Romans 8, 28. This applies to every single area of your life. Your, your vehicle breaks down and you miss an important meeting. It's for your good. Tragedy strikes. 
Ultimately, it will work out for your good. Interruptions come and you are busy. Right? You know, I used to worry about uh, having my study interrupted when I was preparing sermons. Right? I got a deadline to meet. I've got to preach on Sunday. If I'm not ready, who's going to do it? Well, John Newton had a, a similar experience. And let me, let me uh, read to you what he wrote about being interrupted. And he based it on Romans 8, 28 and the sovereignty of God. He, he said that his faith assured him that everything that came his direction came from the Lord. Even his sufferings, and not just his sufferings, but the intensity of them and how long they would be. And not only did they come from God, but they came for his good. Therefore, he knew that God would give him the grace to endure. And so when a deadline was approaching and an interruption came, instead of getting bitter or resentful or upset like most of us would, and then start worrying about how we're going to pick up the, the slack that we lost because of this interruption, here's how John Newton responded. He said, When I hear a knock at my study door, I hear a message from God. It may be a lesson of instruction, perhaps a lesson of patience, but since it is His message, it must be interesting. And was able to delight he was in the interruption. This is a 180 degree turn for most of us, right? Not angry, not, not biting his tongue and welcoming them in because you know, he's a Christian and that's what he should do. The Lord gives us far better promises than just bite your tongue and treat them kindly. He's able to delight and have joy in, in the interruption, knowing that God has sent him a message, and because it's God's message, he dare not begrudge it or decline. You want to talk about the cure for anxiety and fear? All of those things that would make you anxious come from the hand of a loving, all-wise Father who has your eternal best interest in mind, who will help you and strengthen you and provide what you need and who is working all things together, even bad things like temptations and sin for your good and for His glory. And not just working them out for you, but working them out to such a degree that you are able to rejoice about those things that made you anxious. That's the God of Romans 8.28. Or maybe you're given to worry about material needs. Matthew chapter 6, 25-34. I won't comment much on it, but I will read it. Starting in verse, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not, the life, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field they don't labor or spin, yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? 
The pagans run after all of these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do you believe that? That God will provide so you don't have to worry. I mean, you, you, you hear this, and you almost can picture the lilies and the sparrows talking to one another in amazement when God's children run around fearful looking for food or clothes or shelter. When was the last time you saw a bird or a flower afraid for tomorrow or anxiously worrying? They don't. You don't have to either. Well, that's just two promises that God gives in His Word. And there are too many to go through, hundreds and hundreds again. But we can go to one verse that's the arrow pointing to all of them. You want a place to start. We looked at it at Bible study two weeks ago. Psalm 119, 165. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. You want to have peace? Know the Word of God. You don't want to stumble. You're looking ahead and you say, there are all kinds of things that could trip me up. I don't want to, I don't want to stumble over any of them. Know the Word of God. Love His Word. Meditate on it day and night. Read it cover to cover. Give attention to learning it. Learn about God through it. Learn about the many promises He's, promises he's given. Seek Him in Scripture and find Him. I'm reminded of one of the Puritans. He said, so much that Christians endure hardship, worry, lostness, when they go off in the wrong way, all of it would be dealt with had they spent the time in His Word. Valleys are raised up and hills are brought low and crooked paths are made straight. Traps are taken away. Darkness is turned to light by the application of the Word of God to life. It's absolutely true. To the degree you know this book, it's to that degree that you will fear or flourish. That's how you handle fear. Not by digging deep and not by cowering, but by confidently trusting the strength of your God. And that takes humility. It takes humility to admit, I have no strength to overcome this, but my God does, and my God will, and I will trust in Him. You have to know the Word of God to be able to do this. Sometimes I feel like a, a broken record. You have to know the promises of God if you want to make it through this life. They're the lamp to your feet. They're the map that tells you the way to go. This is how you get to learn who God is. This is how you ward off fear. You know, when, when Jesus is in the wilderness and He's battling the devil... You know, what, you know what the sword he draws is? Scripture. And if Jesus Christ 
had to draw the sword of, of the word against the devil, what hope do you have with some other way? When was the last time a temptation came and you immediately, because you trained yourself to do it, began quoting Scripture to yourself? Has it ever happened? Well, then it's no wonder that the path seems dark and you don't know which way you ought to go. So preach these promises to yourself. Get them into your head and into the bloodstream. So when things come and anxieties begin to threaten you, you remind yourself, it's God who comforts me, the Creator of all things. Who am I to be afraid? Who am I to live as though my God were unable or weak or that His promises were unreliable? My prayer is that everyone in this room would be humble enough to not be afraid. Don't be so proud as to live as though God does not keep His Word, but preach to yourself His strength and His promises every day at the first inclination of fear that rises in your soul. When it does, strike it quickly so that you do not need to be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, help your people and exalt your word. There are so many reasons to be afraid, and yet as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of any of them. And I pray, Lord, that this would be true for your people, that they would know you, not just know of you, or about you, but that they would really know you like a, like a child knows their father. And that they would draw the strength that you provide. That the fact that you have said, I hold you by the hand, will be great comfort. And that we would not forget all of your many blessings that you've given us and promised us. Lord, forgive us for fear, which slanders your name. Help us, Lord, to be confident, not in ourselves. Well, there is no reason for any confidence whatsoever in the flesh, not in me, not in any of us, but in you and you alone, Lord. We take great courage and find great strength. Help us to humble ourselves by casting our anxieties on you and not to be afraid of anything that is frightening. It's in your name we pray. Amen.